It's good to be here with you all. Uh, first, before I say anything else, let me dispel any confusion there might be. If you are new today and guest here at Res OC, I am not Pastor Bryce. Uh, we may be the same height, but a little bit different complexion. My name is Jeff Sir, and I am a pastor at New Life Irvine right up the road. Uh, it is a church that is turning seven years old uh, this coming January, so just a, a few years older than, uh, than you guys here at Res OC. And I am married uh, for 16 years. I have three kids, 14, 12, and 10. Well, with that being said, um, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. At our church, I have to tell people to swipe to Matthew 6, 5 through 8, uh, but I hear lots of Bible pages, so that actually warms my heart. This is the reading of God's Word, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they, that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Amen. You may be seated. Now this past year at our church, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you're not familiar with this portion of Scripture, this falls into Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And I loved unpacking these passages for our church because in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount uh, disrupts our moral equilibrium. It unsettled those of us who live in Irvine. If you're not familiar with Irvine, and I'm sure Irvine may not be too different from Ladera Ranch or South OC, it's full of people who love order, who love straight roads, clean streets, uh, safe city, who value education. Uh, it's an affluent city where the cost of living is extremely high. And so it's filled with people who grew up listening to their parents, going to school, studying hard, getting into good colleges, uh, graduating with good grades, getting good jobs, high paying jobs, so that they can live in the city and have their children go through the same cycle their parents did. And so it's full of people, for the most part, uh, who have good-paying jobs, pay their taxes, and are contributing members of society. In Irvine, you won't find too many people who are more of the unsavory sort, if you will. Rebellious people, punk rockers, gangbangers. You're not going to find too many crack houses. You're not going to find a lot of graffiti in Irvine. That's why when last year uh, there was the potential of a homeless camp moving into Irvine, the city just uh, was, in, was up in arms because no, they don't belong here. 
They don't fit with the culture and ethos of our city. You find those kind of people, the rebellious people, perhaps in downtown LA or the streets of Hollywood, but not here in Irvine. And so there's somewhat of a, a snobbery going on uh, where the people of Irvine look down on people whose lives may be out of sorts, people who drop out of school, uh, people who aren't responsible. But that's why I love Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because he turns upside down our moral categories. He confronts people whose lives are well stitched together, who are responsible, contributing members of society, who even go to church on Sundays and says, just because you are maybe responsible, just because you pay your taxes, just because you worship on Sundays, doesn't necessarily mean you're close to God. In fact, he goes so far to say that you may even be further from God than the crack addict who lives on the streets. And if you think I'm making this up, let me ask you, who is it that wanted Jesus dead? Who is it that plotted Jesus' crucifixion? Was it the crack addict down the street, the gangbanger, the, the tagger? No. It was people who were moral, religious, educated, who had clean, squeaky lives. Squeaky clean lives. It were the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious People. They hated Jesus so much that they plotted not just an, any ordinary death, but crucifixion. Why? It's because Jesus pointed at them and said, you are lost. And they didn't like that. And so what does this mean for us? What it causes us to wonder, am I lost? Should I feel safe just because I work hard, I take care of my family, I pay my taxes? Or could it be that Jesus might actually be pointing at me too? You see, what Jesus helps us to see is that there's two ways to be lost, two ways to be far. You can reject societal norms and rules and rebel. Those, those people are easy to identify as far from God. They have no fear of God. But there's another way to be lost, too. It's by being religious, morally upright, doing everything you're supposed to do. That, too, can be another way to be lost. And, and what's tricky about this latter group is that on the outside... The religious group look exactly the same as Jesus' followers. They worship, they read holy scriptures, they pray, they give money to the poor, they take care of their families. On the outside, they look identical, identical but on the inside, one is far and the other is near. One is lost and the other is found. And so throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is helps us to see whether or not you truly belong to God or whether or not you're not. Whether you're a member of God's kingdom or simply a spectator. And so if they look the same on the outside, what differentiates the two? How do we know whether we're genuine believers 
or imposters. Well, here in our passage, the litmus test Jesus points to is by examining how we pray. He says, how you pray is a litmus test of whether or not you are a genuine follower of Jesus or a counterfeit follower of religion. And there's two aspects of our prayer life that he points to. He he wants us to look at our reward and our relationship. By looking at the reward of prayer, what you hope to gain from prayer, or our relationship, how you see yourself in prayer, those two aspects will reveal your true colors, reveal whether or not you truly belong or not. And so let's begin with the first aspect, the reward of prayer, which is found in verses 5 through 6. Verse 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And so what's the reward for religious people who he calls hypocrites here? The reward for religious people when they pray is that they hope to look good in front of others. The religious person prays in order to be seen, in order to be noticed, in order to gain street cred. From other people. That's why they love the synagogues. That's why they love to pray on the street corners. That's where you get maximum exposure. It's kind of like the Irvine spectrum of Jesus' day. They were hoping people would look at them and say, Wow, what a spiritual person. He or she must really love God. Now, please don't misunderstand Jesus here. He's not saying that we should never pray in public. He's not speaking against public prayer. I don't want you to stone Jason for praying in front of all of us here or stone me later on when I pray. Jesus prayed publicly all the time. If you remember, before he fed the 5,000, which was a large number in his day, he lifted up a prayer before everyone. And so Jesus isn't speaking against public prayer. What he is speaking against is publicity prayers. There's a difference. And so for religious people, that's their reward. That's why they pray, to look good in front of others. But for those who follow Jesus, those who genuinely belong to God, they are those who pray in secret. Jesus says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. The word room Jesus refers to here is a specific type of room. It's the room, the inner room of a home that often stored valuables. You don't keep valuables in your mailbox or in the dining room. No, you keep valuables away from the public where you don't want anyone to see it. In the same way, he says, pray so that no one knows you are praying. You see, for Jesus followers, we don't care if there's no publicity to our prayers. Why? Because we seek a different reward. What does the end of verse 5 say? It says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That right there is our reward. It's knowing that our father sees us in secret. We pray because in prayer, we get to meet God. 
God himself is our reward. We don't mind if we have an audience of one. We don't mind if no one else sees us because for us, the only audience that matters is God himself, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who holds the galaxies in his hands, in whose presence the mountains melt like wax. It is he who waits for us in our closets. He is the one that we seek to commune with. This God-centered focus of prayer is seen in Paul's prayers for the churches. Throughout his letters, specifically his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, what you find are prayers that he writes out for them. What's interesting is when you scan all of Paul's prayers, it contains no appeal for change. No appeal for change in their earthly circumstances. This is odd when you consider the fact that the early church faced great persecution, disease, oppression, and separation from loved ones. The early church was far more dangerous and precarious than it is for us today in comfortable America. Yet despite their harsh and oppressive conditions, Paul never prays for a better emperor. He never prays that the laws might change so that it could legalize Christianity. He never prays for protection or for the drought to end. Uh, he never prays for comfort and ease. Of course, this doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for such change. Later on, Jesus is going to teach us the Lord's Prayer where he teaches us to pray for our daily bread. What this means, though, is that in the limited space Paul had to write, Paul was captured by a greater concern. More than relief, more than protection, more than rescue, Paul frequently, fervently prays that we might encounter more of God. He frequently and fervently prays that we might understand God's love more, His grace more, His power more in deep and fresh ways. Because for Paul, there's no greater blessing he can bestow upon his beloved brothers and sisters than for them to get more of God. And so he doesn't pray that they might get things from God, but he prays that they might get more of God. And this is what differentiates a follower of religion from a follower of Jesus. For Jesus' followers, our desire to pray ultimately comes from a desire to get more of God, knowing who it is that waits for us in our prayer closets. But what's interesting is when you look at Jesus' words, he doesn't say that our reward is that we get to see God, but rather the converse. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says that our reward is that our Father gets to see us. Every December, my family is turned upside down because my daughter uh, is a ballerina, 
and she performs in the Nutcracker. Um, and it's a huge production. She's part of a studio that's not small time where they have a cute production, amateur production. No, she's part of a professional production. They perform at the Irvine Barclay Theater and they welcome the best ballerinas in the world. Uh, ballerinas who have performed in the grandest stages all across the globe, where, whether it's uh, Sarah Mearns or Maria uh, Kachikova, uh, they, they have the best of the best dancers performing. My daughter, on the other hand, is more of a background dancer, right? She plays a more uh, minor role. Now let me ask you, when I go to watch The Nutcracker, who am I looking for? Who is my eye fixed on? Is it the gifted, famous ballerinas? No, when I'm there, I am just looking for my daughter. She might be up front, she might be in the back corner, she might be behind someone else, and my neck is craning to see her, my eye is fixed on every move so that I don't miss a thing. And guess who it is that causes me to tear up because of her beauty? Not the professionals. It's my daughter. You see, this is what Jesus is saying to us. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. We are the apple of our father's eye. He's waiting to spend time with us. He's waiting to see us and to know that our God delights to hear our prayers in such a way is our reward. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Dear friends, what motivates you to pray? Is it public awareness? or the audience of one? Is it looking good in front of others or being in the presence of God? Here's some helpful diagnostic questions to help you understand where you fall. How often do you pray in public versus in private? How much of your prayer life is spent praying at church or with church people, or perhaps with your children, or with your spouse. Add up all of those minutes and compare that to the number of minutes you spend praying by yourself. If it's abnormally lopsided, why is that? Are you similar to who Jesus is calling out here? Praying to simply appease someone's expectations. Praying because you're supposed to. Or is your reward meeting God himself? Now there's another aspect of prayer that Jesus focuses on besides rewards. He also wants us to focus on the relationship of prayer. He points this out in verse 7. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Here, Jesus exposes religious prayer as simply a means 
to grab God's attention and flag him down. This is seen in the quote-unquote empty phrases the Gentiles heap up. What Jesus is referring to here is a common practice of the Gentiles back then. They would lift up these long, nonsensical, blabbering prayers that would go on for, you know, for a long time. Why? Because the Gentiles believed that if they uttered the right syllables or prayed long enough, it would grab the deity's attention. It would cause the deity to do their bidding. And so it was their way to say, God, look at me, look at me, look at all these words I'm lifting up to you. Look at all this time I'm spending in front of you. This method of praying reveals much about how they saw God and how they saw themselves. What I picture is an orphan beggar on the street. You know how street beggars may act when they're in a crowded area. They'll do whatever they can to get your attention. Perhaps they'll do some tricks, some eye-catching routine. Perhaps they'll throw cardboard down and start breakdancing, right? Or they'll do a magic show. They try to gain uh, an audience and then use their talents to persuade you to give them money. And, and that's what Jesus says the Gentiles are doing. They're these beggars who are trying to grab God's attention and persuade God to do their bidding. But for people who follow Jesus, for people who understand the gospel, we don't need to flag God down. We don't have to get his attention. Why? Because we don't see ourselves as orphan beggars. Rather, we see ourselves as children. Did you notice how Jesus frequently says, your father, in these three verses? Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to who? Your father who sees in secret, and your Father will reward you. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. And so for, for those of us who follow Jesus, the relationship that we have with Him is one of Abba Father and we as His beloved children. And it's this posture, this understanding of our approach to God that changes everything about how we view prayer. Think about it. For those of you who are parents, how do your children talk to you? Or if you're not a parent, how do you talk to your parents? Do they say, oh, beloved father, esteemed and mighty one, I beseech thee. Is that how your kids talk to you? Yes. <laughs> if it's my home, it's, Dad, I need some toilet paper, right? Actually, it's not even I need, Dad, toilet paper, right? Dad, I need some money. Dad, Dad, can I play some Fortnite, right? That's, that's how it goes in my home. My, my children don't need to convince me that they're worthy of my love, my protection or provision. I mean, how awful would it be if my children had to convince me 
to provide for them. Dad, I'm really hungry. It's been a couple days since I've last eaten, but I've done all my chores. Um, I brushed my teeth. The bathroom is clean. Do you think you can feed me? Or if my daughter came up to me and was like, Dad, I got straight A's. I didn't get in trouble. It's never late. Could you give me a hug? No. Even the thought of my children having to earn my love and care and provision is unsettling to me. I'm their father. They don't have to earn my love and attention and care. They have it. It's their right as my children, right? So much so that if I don't provide those things unconditionally, people would say, you're a bad father. I'm supposed to give them those things. That's my job. And the same can be said about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus is saying, do you know who you're praying to? He's your Heavenly Father. As a result, you have rights. You have claims upon Him. He is supposed to listen to you, care for you, comfort you, provide for you. And so pray and take advantage of that because you're not an orphan on the street. You're His beloved children. And that's why Jesus says, God knows your needs already. The reason why he already knows your needs is because he's been watching you the whole time. I remember when my youngest was a toddler, I used to call him a simpleton because I knew what he was thinking. We'd be watching TV and a commercial would go on for a Nerf gun. And I'd be like, I know what's gonna happen next. Commercial ends, he turns around, his eyes are this big. Dad, can I get that for Christmas? Right? And I knew exactly what he was going to say next. Why? Because I know him. He's my son. If you think about it, there's not too many people in this world that you can say my to. The word my is tremendously intimate. I know Elder Sam, but let's say he introduced me and said, I want you to meet my Jeff. I come up feeling a little awkward saying, I know we're close, but not that close, right? The word my is something you don't just throw around. But if my son was here, I said, I want you to meet my son. And he looks up at me and says, this is my dad. It's totally appropriate. And that's the intimate bond between a child and his or her father. And that's the type of bond God has with us. And these rights that we have of love, care, protection, provision. Please don't mistake God as being obligated to do these things. These are responsibilities He loves to do. He wants to fulfill. You see, He chose to adopt you. 
And for any of us who have been through the adoption process, you know it's a grueling, lengthy, costly process to adopt someone uh, today. But believe me, the lengths our God went through in order to adopt you is far more costly than anything we go through today. Because it cost our Heavenly Father the life of His only begotten Son to make you His child. And so if He was willing to go through all that to call you His own, for sure these responsibilities He has for you are things that He wants to do and delights to do. And so... That's the type of relationship we have as followers of Jesus Christ. What differentiates us from religious people is ultimately the gospel. We see God as our Abba Father. Religious people see God as simply a judge or an ogre in disguise, someone to appease. Our relationship with God is grounded in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done for us, there's nothing we can do that could ever change our relationship with God. We will always be His beloved children. And so prayer is no longer a platform for us to prove ourselves to God or to get Him to love us or do our bidding but rather prayer becomes a means for us to commune with Him, cast our cares upon Him, and present the deepest longings of our hearts. And that's the, the litmus test that differentiates religious people from gospel people. It's the reward we seek and the relationship we have with God. Dear friends, do you see what a huge blessing it is to pray? Do you see what awaits you every morning when you wake up? Do you see who awaits you during your lunchtime hour? Do you see who awaits you every time you go to sleep? Do you see what great access we have because we are children of God? If we truly realized who it is that awaits us, who it is that invites us, and our identity as children of God, we will understand that prayer is not something we have to do, but it's something that we get to do. And as we close out this year and start making resolutions for 2019, may I suggest putting prayer near the top of the list to, to commit yourself to meet with God? Because like Paul, I can't think of a greater blessing to bestow upon you than for you to spend more time with our beloved Heavenly Father. Because as you spend time with Him, you'll realize just how rich, amazing, stunning our Heavenly Father is towards us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gift you have given us. The ability to approach your throne at any moment, any time, with any state of heart we might be in. To know, O oh Lord, that we pray to an Abba Father, 
as your beloved children. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to throw off any cultural baggage when it comes to prayer and help us to really grasp and embrace its purity, its intention, and its purpose that you give us this gift so that we might get more of you. And so I pray, O oh Lord, for my brothers and sisters here at Resurrection OC. Father, may they become a prayerful people in the year to come. And as they spend time on their knees, may they realize more and more just how blessed and rich they are to be your children. We pray this in Jesus' name.